turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were... Oh, I did this last time too. I kept going. <laughs> no, we're stopping there. <laughs> Actually, now it occurs to me, it was two months ago when I last preached on this. So if you don't remember, you know, it, it's been a little bit longer than I thought. Well, I, uh, I love Scotland. Maybe it's just the idea of Scotland. I haven't actually been there, so I don't know if you can say you love something until you've actually been there, but I, I, I love the idea of it. There's, a, there's something to the gently rolling hills dotted with you know, little herds of, of sheep, and the food also generally, most often, I think fits my Norwegian sensibilities of bland and colorless. Um, you know, just some sausage and some mashed potatoes or cooked cabbage. You know, that's, a, that's, that's pretty safe, pretty tame. You know, although I will actively avoid haggis for the rest of my life, and if you don't know what it is, I'm not going to ruin it for you. Uh, but you can look it up later, just make sure it's after you've eaten lunch. But, you know, that's all I'll say on that. But, but my love for Scotland isn't really about the food or the land or the, you know, it's the aesthetic. It's, it's about the sort of Christians that that place has produced for the last 500 years uh, since God used John Knox and others like him to bring a great reformation about to that land. And it's, it's waxed and waned over the years, but, but on the list of some of my favorite preachers and Bible teachers to read, um, you know, th through that last 500 years, a lot of them are from Scotland. And if you've even heard me talk about, uh, I had a professor uh, who himself was Scottish, and I, I do tend to agree with him because he said of, of it, oh, that's the holy land. Um, just because of the sheer number of excellent servants of God that have existed there. And it's not just the preachers or the theologians, but it's, it's, it's even the, the market women, the scholarly maids, the statesmen, everyone. There's there was a reformation that happened in the people there. And one such Scottish theologian, James Denny, has a quote, and it sticks with me every single time I prepare to preach. Um, no man can at once, no man can give at once the impressions that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. I cannot, by my cleverness, accomplish anything good for you or for Christ. And cleverness is something that I'm really prone to trying to be. I'm not saying I am clever. I'm saying I wish I were, and I want to be. 
so it's one of the things that I, it sneaks in. And, and, you know, this is a good quote for me, if nothing else, than the fact that I don't attempt to be clever, because I'm not. But I like reading when someone's clever. And, and I think we all pretty much do. You read something, it's like, oh, interesting. That was, that was a really clever way of saying it. But why, why, I mean, why confess that now? Well, my motive is this. This sermon is the hardest one I've ever yet preached. And it's not because the text is difficult to interpret. And I think you'll agree as we look at it, it's, it's pretty plain. Uh, the meaning is pretty plain. It's pretty much right there. But while writing this sermon, I have wished that it weren't so plain so that I could have some sort of escape from the plain commands that are right here. And now, the commands here are not, they're not burdensome. They are gracious to us. But this self-righteous nature that we all have does not want to admit what these commands force us to admit. And I know that it's not just me, it's many of us that are more so prone to this very thing. So, I think you will hear this sermon, and there will be a lot of things in it that you might think right away, oh, that doesn't apply to me, and here's why. And let me tell you personally, I did that all throughout writing this. Oh, that doesn't apply to me. That was just a first thought. And let me tell you, you are so wrong if you think that. The great proof that you need to hear this sermon will be that you don't want to hear it. And I can sympathize with you, right? I, these commands are not what I like to hear either. But good medicine often tastes bitter. And because I know that for many of you, like myself, it will be hard to hear, and you will try to excuse yourselves. I'm beginning with the full admission of my own guilt and hardness of heart in this text to God's commands, because I'm hoping to disarm some of you, uh, so that you will, you will not think just, this is for somebody else. Because this is, this is what's glorious about this, though. This is God's word to his children. So if you are his child, then it applies. Like I said two months ago about, uh, I preached on this text, and we hit one angle, uh, and we're going to go on a different angle now. But, but what, I, what I said last time I was here, uh, I spent nearly half an hour, I think, on the first word, therefore, right? With some preliminary thoughts on the rest of it. Because the therefore, as I said, indicates that everything Peter is has said in the first 12 verses has bearing on what's coming next. And as a recap of those first 12 verses, let's just remember that Peter began this letter by blessing God who has worked so great a salvation for those who wait for him. Because out of his own good pleasure, God has chosen to love those who because of our sins are not lovely in ourselves. But God has made us lovely in his son, Jesus Christ. And then Peter addressed the trials that Christians face as a result of their faith. 
And he said that God has a purpose in every trial that he gives to his children. Because what he is doing is he is taking out this, this faith that has parts of it depending on ourselves and parts of it depending on him and, and growing in us a faith that wholeheartedly depends on him. And then finally, we saw that Peter was helping his readers understand that the majesty of God's plan so that they could stand firm in the suffering that they were in. And he did this by showing them that the plan for Christ to suffer and receive glory was always the plan all along. And so as we saw last week then, Peter is now in this text going to give commands to these Christians, his first readers, and to us. But because of this, therefore, we are to see that it's based upon what God has done for us and not something that we do to earn from God. See, I spoke about how God gives us commands, right? And we are to keep those commands as Christians because we are his people and he is our God. As Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So when you hear a command, and you'll be hearing many commands, remember that this is how God treats his children. He tells us how to live, not so that we can earn a place with him, but because he has already given us a place in Jesus Christ. Now that was a really short recap of the last sermon you heard from me. And if you feel like I just breezed through it, I admit I did, but that's because you can go back and listen to the other one if there are some points that you're like, well, what do you mean? But now we're going to drill down into the three commands that we just touched on last time. I'll give you those headings again, these three commands that we're going to see here. Hope, holiness, and fear. So now let's return to these three. Peter says, first of all, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The main command here is set your hope. With everything, all the words around it, describing the ways and the means of doing just that. So let's just take it in order and see how we are to set our hope. First, he says, preparing your minds for action. Literally, if you have the King James, if you have something that's a little bit more following the uh, word for word, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. Put your pants on, basically. Put your pants on your mind. So picture anyone from the time of the Bible. It could be Abraham or Elijah or even Peter. And, you know, if you, you're picturing them, and if you had flannel graphs or anything else, you know, what do you, what do you picture them? They're, they're wearing this kind of long kind of robe, right? That's kind of the idea, right? That's, that's what you picture them wearing. It's a long robe-like garment. Now, if you've got that on, try and imagine digging in your garden or running a race, or fighting in a battle. And you would soon find that all the stuff is just kind of getting in the way. 
I mean, you lift up your leg and you're caught and you're going to trip over and you can't even, I mean, you can't move quickly. So what you would do to take your belt that you had, you would grab the sides of your garment, all the loose stuff, and you'd wrap it up around yourself and you'd take the belt and you'd cinch it up tight. Gird up your loins. Put your pants on. Get ready to do some work. Put on your work jeans. Lace up your boots. It's go time. That's what Peter is saying. We need to get down to business. And the next phrase has a similar purpose. It's being sober-minded. And now certainly this, this does mean not to be drunk, like with alcohol, but it carries much more meaning as well. Because it's not just a negative command, don't be drunk. It's actually a positive, be sober. So it, it has this idea of keeping our minds under control. Because with a sober mind, you can process what's coming at you and you can choose how to respond. So with these two phrases, what Peter is, is telling us to do is eliminate distractions and get ready to do some hard work with your mind. Because the business of setting your hope is rigorous and it requires an alert and able mind. Now, is that, is that how you think of hope? Is hope something that you have to actively exercise like it's a muscle? Or do you, do you think of it as some sort of warm, fuzzy feeling somewhere in the general area of your chest? You know, if your hope is small, it might be because you've neglected to exercise it. This is not something that you can just commit a few minutes to and then expect to see results. You need to prepare yourself to do some hard work. And there's going to be major distractions coming to try and throw you off this goal, but don't let them. Because the next descriptor that Peter uses is the word fully. To set your hope fully. Not a little hope in this one thing and a little hope in another. No, your hope is to be set in one thing. And you're going to be tempted to hope a little bit here and a little bit there in different areas of your life. You know, maybe in the area of finances, you're going to be tempted to set your hope in your career or your work ethic or your skills or your investment portfolio. And in the area of your marriage, you're going to be tempted to set your hope on your past relational capital or the fact that you have shared assets or that you have kids together or the romantic feelings that you have for each other. And in other areas, you're going to be tempted to set your hope on the right political system being in place or the fact that things are generally going to keep on going about as well as they have since, since forever, or that your good health will just continue, you're going to be tempted to put your hope into these sorts of things. You have been tempted to put your hope in these things. But the one thing that you are to set your hope fully in is this. What do you say? He says, grace. He says, namely, the grace that will be yours when Jesus Christ appears, when he comes again with the clouds to rule and to reign. See, when Jesus comes to destroy all his enemies, when he breaks all the nations as if they were just terracotta garden pots, 
when the sword that comes out of his mouth slaying his enemies and he sits on the great throne of judgment to judge all the deeds of everyone who has ever lived, what will you get from him who sees into all your secret motives and every corner of your heart? Grace. To those who are in him, grace is what you will get. When he looks upon you with all your faults and failings, your weak faith, and the record of every sin you've ever committed against him, what will you hear him say? You are my beloved. With you I am well pleased. The grace that Jesus has for you is worthy of your undivided hope. Let that grace you receive, that grace that is going to be yours at the hour of judgment, that should pervade the rest of your life. Because if you can expect grace at the judgment throne, where it counts more than any other place, then you can expect it and rely upon it everywhere else. So what hope do you have that your marriage will continue? Two imperfect sinners who live together, try to work together, try to accomplish something together. Your hope is that Jesus is gracious to you both. What hope, that, what hope do you have that you can provide financially for food and for clothing? God feeds the birds of the air and clothes the fields with lilies. And you are more precious to him than these. What hope do you have when the whole world is in turmoil or persecutions arise against you like the first recipients of this letter? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. I will be with you always. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He speaks on Psalm 23, especially verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's what he says. It is not only I do not want, but I shall not want. Come what may, if famine should devastate the land, or calamity destroy the city, I shall not want. Old age with its feebleness shall not bring me any lack. And even death with its gloom shall not find me destitute. I have all things in abound, not because I have a good store of money in the bank, not because I have skill and wit with which to win my bread, but because the Lord is my shepherd. Through Peter's letter, Jesus is commanding you to actively focus your hope, not on the things around you, but on him alone. So don't lose sight of him or the grace he is bringing when he appears. Let's look at the second command now. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, Peter could be quoting from any number of places in the Old Testament, in the law. There are several places where God says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And this command, like the first, 
is based upon who God is and what he has done for us. Because just as we ought to set our hope fully on Jesus' grace, so also we ought to live based upon the pattern of life that God himself is in his very nature. See, this is, this is based upon the character of God. He doesn't say, be holy for this reward or for that reason or because I said so. He said, be holy because I am holy. God is holy, pure, righteous, unstained with any sin, complete and perfect. And because he is our God, he commands us to be like him. As obedient children. Literally the phrase, it's it's an idiom. It means actually children of obedience. As in, obedience is the parent and you are the child. You are so conformed to obedience that that's that's your parent. You have the family likeness of obedience. So what Peter is saying is not to be conformed to your, your, your former ignorance and those passions. He's saying you used to be ignorant of God and, and then you followed all your passions and your lusts wherever they directed you. But now you have been so changed by your new faith in Christ that not only do you not live that way anymore, but you don't even resemble that person anymore. You used to be children of your father, the devil, but now you are children of obedience, children of God. But being holy as God is holy is not just a negative of not living a certain way before. There's the positive to holiness. Being like God is, like Jesus Christ is. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's actually someone that we can emulate, someone that we can imitate. And now as part of the people and family of God, we have a father who calls us to live like he does. One commentator, Edmund Clowney, sums up this verse in this way. He says, The pattern of holy living cannot be reduced to a limited number of, quote, holy actions. God's righteous deeds flow from his holy nature. Holiness patterned on his must express transformed hearts. So we cannot be holy as, we cannot be as holy as God is. Let me say that right. We cannot be as holy as God is, but we can be holy as God is holy. So we can't be holy to the degree that he is. He is holy to a degree that is so far above every created thing and infinitely higher than the angels of heaven. But he has given us the ability to follow his pattern and example in holiness. Because God the Holy Spirit has created in all his people new holy hearts within us that have new holy affections to live holy lives of obedience in imitation of our holy Father. And the last thing, and if you call on him as Father, the last command, if you call on him as Father, which we do, If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile. So finally, because, because we have God as Father, we must conduct ourselves with fear all our lives before him. Now, you may have heard, and I talked about this last time too, but you may have heard that having the fear of God, you may have heard somebody soften it just to be respectful or to honor him, but that really doesn't capture all the weight of the word fear. There is an ungodly way to fear God. If you think that he's up to no good, if you don't know what to expect of him, if you're looking over your shoulder for the next thunderbolt, then you are fearing him because you think he's unpredictable and uncaring towards you. And that's an ungodly fear. It's a faithless fear. But he is who he says he is. He is holy and righteous and good. And so the fear of God that we are to have as Christians actually springs out of a love for God. And we can even see this in how Peter gives this command. In the very wording here. See, before he's got this commanding us to fear, he draws our attention to God as our Father. We are to remember that he will judge each one of us impartially, but look at the words and how they are ordered. Peter doesn't say, God is your judge. He doesn't even say, God is a judge or the judge. But he does say, God is our Father. He says, judging is an action that God does, but Father is the title. It's who he is. And and in Jewish society that Peter comes from, the position of Father was higher and more honorable and more noble than the position of a judge. Because a judge can only dole out punishment and reward according to the law. That's all he does. But a father commands and teaches and provides for his family. You only come into contact with a judge if you enter into some legal matter. Otherwise, the judge has nothing to do with you. But you receive your very life from your father before you're even born. You're connected to him. And everything you do as a child reflects upon him as your father. So on the first reading, it may look like Peter is cautioning us against getting too cozy with God as our father by reminding us that he is also our judge. But that's, that's not the right way to look at it. He's not saying, remember, your father is also a judge, and he's not going to let you off the hook just because he's your father. That's actually the opposite of what he's saying. That's the opposite order. Because here's what you should hear Peter saying. You know that there is a judge who perfectly keeps and administers the law, and that not one sin will slip past him. He's the perfect moral standard. And you call him your father. If you are in Christ, there is no reason to fear that God will be wrathful to you on account of your sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't be afraid of him as your judge. Rather, 
be afraid to live in such a way that reflects poorly upon him as your father. Fear, keep watchful over yourself, not because you're in jeopardy of sinning against a judge who will punish you. Instead, have in yourself a fear of offending your father. And now, there may be many of you that had a cruel father who did not remotely resemble the kind and loving character of God. And for that reason, it's difficult to think of God as your father. But even if you had the best human father imaginable, he would be only the palest picture of the loving kindness of God the Father. You know, sometimes we get it into our heads that Jesus is the gracious one in the Trinity. That he had to pacify his father by his death on the cross before his father would welcome us. But that idea that God the Father is not happy with us, that he at best is indifferent to us, but only after Jesus won him over, it's not only completely wrong, it's downright diabolical. There is a father spoken of in the scriptures that hates us and wants to kill us. The father of lies, who was a murderer from the beginning. But every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights, in whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. His mercies never fail. They don't change at all. Jesus is explicit in the Gospels. Caleb preached about it last week, how Jesus talks about how he only does what he sees his father doing. Jesus is explicit that the plan to save his people was not his own, but came from his father. And it's right in the favorite text of evangelicals, John 3.16. For whom so loved the world? It doesn't say for Jesus so loved the world that he gave himself. Now, that's true. Jesus did give himself because of love. He talks about greater love has no one than this than to give his life for his, for his friends. But, but what does the scripture say here? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I said at the beginning that these commands would be hard for us to hear. That we are not to have our hopes divided and all these other things, all these good things, we're not to hope in. It's good to be able to have skills in a career. It's good to have an investment portfolio or whatever. It's excellent to have a good relationship with your spouse. But we're not to hope in those things. We are to live to the standard of holiness that God is. Who can hear that and think, yep, I've got it. Yep, done that. It's hard to hear these things. But they will be impossible for us to keep unless we know the love that God the Father has for us. So I urge you, 
today, this day of rest that God has given, go and take and read some part of the New Testament. You really probably won't have to do more than a couple chapters and you'll, you'll see the love that God the Father has and how he's the one who orchestrated the whole plan of salvation. How he's the one who looks down upon you with such great love. And it's that love, it's being convinced of that love that will make you able to live according to these commands that he has graciously given to us. Let's pray.